0: Uh, God, we thank you for our time tonight where we get to gather together and uh, engage your word. God, I pray uh, for direction, as it seems you've been changing uh, some directions in, in at least the last 48 hours. I pray that tonight as, as we aim to really bring some things together that we've been looking at in the last eight weeks, and as we aim to bring them together and have an understanding of of what our relationships represent, uh, I pray uh, that by the work of the Spirit, uh, we would be changed, we would be informed uh, that we could respond appropriately to the things we, we hear. Uh, God we come before you humbly also, just knowing that any time we try anything on our own, it just does not work. Anytime we try to make up the rules as we go or figure it out as we go, it does not work. Uh, there is a design that you put in place. Uh, there's structure, there's order, and we're called to submit to it, not just figure out things as we go. And so I pray uh, humbly that that would happen tonight. That we, as we look a little deeper tonight at that design, at that order, at that structure and what it's supposed to represent, I pray that we would uh, be informed, and I pray by the work of your Spirit that we would submit. We can talk all day long about marriage and relationships and parenting and love. And uh, if we do it apart from the Spirit, it's in vain. If what we're talking about is only the proclamation of man's wisdom, then it's in vain. God, we rely on your power. So as we engage that tonight, consider what that means. I I beg you uh, to make things clear as I do not have the ability to do so. Uh, We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I apologize for the way I sound. I looked at my calendar, and I've been congested for about a year now. And so it is driving me insane, but that's not a big deal. Uh, last week, uh, well, first of all, I've had, I sent out an email today explaining that there's been a change in plans, and uh, I'll explain it tonight, And so I'm going to explain it. But since I sent out that email, I've had like, more phone calls of people who aren't going to be here. And so, uh, hopefully we'll get a good recording so that they can listen to that. And for those who are listening, y'all are losers for not being here. Uh, But uh, that includes Pastor Ben, um, turkey hunting. Uh, But uh, tonight's important. Last week I introduced this next, the eight-week plan, where I was going to spend three more weeks talking about covenant relationships and and love and marriage, and parenting, and then we were going to have another five or six weeks after that where we watched a video series on uh, the same marriage, and love, and, and parenting, and relationships, and conflict resolution, all that, and uh, counsel from my wife, counsel from a close friend, and then just work with the Spirit as I prayed through it. I realized when you take, and I'm taking a big piece of humble pie as I say this to y'all so I hope y'all are hearing it the right way when you take a a, a springboard from the scripture I explained it last week so every now and again we'll come to something and we came to something in the end of Genesis 24 where we see Isaac and Rebecca and they love each other like immediately and we see that there's a will to love there and we see that God brought them together and so that springboarded us to talk about all these things we've talked about uh arranged marriages and dowry and bride. we've talked about all kinds of things And sometimes that springboard can go, and you can just take it for forever and forever and forever. And we had a staff meeting. We're like, okay, we'll do that. We'll get this through May, and then that'll get us to June, and then we'll do the Wednesday night thing with the kids in June, and we're making this big plan. And then after the staff meeting, it was like all of us separately went. We're like, wow, are we really going to end the year showing videos? Are we really going to, like, carry on this Genesis 24 springboard thing for another six weeks? And just through the work of the Spirit, what I've come to is I really think that we have more to learn, but I think it needs to happen in the context of Genesis. And so I want us to get back to this Genesis study. I'm eager to go to Genesis 25 and Genesis 26 and Genesis 27, and I'm eager to get back to it, and I think that God has a lot more to say about marriage. And one of the things is that, like our studies, we we do expository teaching here, and so I wouldn't want anyone who could say this if they've been here only for the last five weeks on this Wednesday study is, they could, you could look at, okay, that's the Thessalonian study, that's the Samuel study, that's the James study, and then Wednesday night is the marriage and family study. It's the Genesis study. And what I've looked at is I was looking at all the books that I've read within the last year or purchased to read within the next year about relationships and marriage and community and all these things, and I've got them off my shelf and it's this stack of books here. Light reading. And uh, I've read about half of them, and the other half I aim to read in the next year. Now, why do I show you this? This is a study on marriage and community and relationships. That's what this is. This is a Genesis study. And so we're going to get back to Genesis. And I want to be careful how I say this, because I don't want to diminish the importance of marriage and love and community and conflict resolution and all these things we've been talking about because those are the means by which we can daily put the gospel on display. In your relationships, in in the way that you love within your marriage, in the way that you parent your children, in the way that you show patience, in the way that you don't stir them up to anger, that is the means by which every day as you're engaging other families, you can put on display the gospel. And so it's of huge importance. And I don't want to diminish the importance by saying, well, last week we were going to spend eight more weeks and this week I'm just tired of it. We're just going to move on. I don't want you to hear that. The importance is huge. And what I feel like God is saying through the Spirit is we will engage those things and continue to engage those things. And for every book you read like this, there's footnotes, and you've got to buy two or three more books after you read that book because it cited this book, and that book's good. And then we can read all the books and conference series, DVD stuff we want. But I think that what we have to hear from the Lord is going to come from the Word. And so I want, I'm eager to get back to Genesis because I think we have more to learn in the context of Genesis. So I think that's what the Lord is bringing us to. So tonight our aim is going to be to wrap up Genesis 24 with a very sobering reality of what marriage represents. So uh, things have changed in the last 48 hours. I was originally—I had my three-week plan on what I was going to teach, and then you know, I was going to kind of take a break. And now we're not. We're just going eight, seven more weeks, just Genesis. We may get through Genesis 30, who knows, by the time summer gets here. But tonight we're going to finish Genesis 24, Lord willing. I'm going to put that in there in case he wills we spend another week on it. But he probably won't from what I can tell so far. My question is this. I want to start off with this question. What happens when something or someone is misrepresented? Just kind of think about it and answer it as you think. What happens if something or someone is misrepresented? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you could make more of them than they really are, or you could make less of them than they really are, depending on how they're misrepresented. Okay. What else happens when something or someone is misrepresented? You missed the truth. Yeah. Here, what you just said, you're either making more of them or less of them, but you, you don't know them. You don't know, the, or the thing, or whatever it is. So you miss the truth by misrepresentation. What else happens when something is misrepresented? What if I misrepresent something to you, and you go home to, to tell your spouse what they may have missed in a Bible study? It's like contagious misrepresentation, and then not only have I missed the truth, but I've communicated something to you, and you've missed the truth, but then you told your friend, and they told their two friends, and they told their two friends, and it's like this contagious misrepresentation and so when we misrepresent something, uh, the truth is, is skewed. It's, it's no longer truth. When truth becomes kind of not true, it's not true anymore. And so we got to rightly represent the things that are to be rightly represented. That's very vague. We'll get closer to it in a minute. How can you rightly represent someone or something? This is very vague, but we'll get to something in a minute. How can you rightly represent someone or something? By knowing the truth. Okay? And then what? By knowing them. By knowing them. And then what? Can you rightly represent something just by knowing it? You've got to say it. Okay. This is important. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. We are, if I had a title for tonight, it would be Covenant, Conflict, and Misrepresentation. But I don't have a title, so that's not what it is. But if I did, that's what it would be. Covenant, Conflict, and Misrepresentation. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2 and we're going to wrap up Genesis 24 tonight Lord willing. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2:2. 2, 2. Paul is about to deal with some junk in the church. Paul is about to deal with some junk going on in the church. We'll talk about the specifics of the junk in a moment, but I want you to look at how he begins. He's about to just talk about all the junk going on. We're going to talk about the specifics, but this is how he begins. And I want us to begin tonight the same way in wrapping up Genesis 24. He says in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with a lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So that's what Paul has said in 1 Corinthians. He said, I'm about to confront you on some issues, and I'm about to... Just kind of really bring the house down on this and that and this and that. But before I do, I want you all to see that as I come to you, I don't come to you in a scheming way. I don't come and try and figure out the way you think and then I'm going to use the way you think against you. I don't have this big presentation. What I am coming to you and saying is, is Jesus Christ crucified? And if I know Jesus Christ crucified, that informs everything else appropriately. And so that's what he's saying. That's how he's going to them. And this is where we land tonight. We've talked about so many specifics in marriage and parenting and love and community. We've talked about a lot of specifics in the last eight weeks. And then there was like a five-week break, so it's been like 13 weeks that we've been talking about all these specifics. We've considered conflict resolution. We've considered worshiping God in the midst of the details and sharing the details so that others can worship God in a like manner. We've looked at the role of husbands. We've looked at the role of wives. We've looked at the role of children. We've looked at the role of the community of faith. And what we're going to look at now is, but to what end? It's kind of the same question that Ben asked on Sunday. What are we even doing here? Kind of like, don't, the whole point on Sunday was it's Easter Sunday, and he's saying, don't miss the message because of the day, because the day has a message. What we're going to say here is, don't miss marriage for what it represents because it represents something, but you can look at it and totally miss it. And so what we're going to look at tonight is to what end? Tonight, our aim is to know Jesus Christ crucified. If this was all that we knew, Christ crucified, and if Christ crucified was all that we could speak, and I'm asking you this question, how would Jesus Christ crucified inform marriage and families and parenting and community and love? I want us to have some conversation here. If all we knew was Christ crucified, and someone asked about marriage, and all you knew was Christ crucified, what would you be able to tell them? Or love, or parenting, or relationships. Sacrificing? Selflessness, love, yeah, our need for Christ, forgiveness, persistence. What else? Propitiation, wrath absorber. This is what we're talking about tonight. See, what I'm want to get, wanting to get at is this big stack of books is great. There's a lot of information about uh, families and discipleship and community and uh, conflict resolution, a mess worth making, the age of opportunity shepherding a child's a momentary marriage, a beautiful mess, what he must be if he wants to marry my daughter. That's the one I'm reading right now. And, uh, and they're all great but they are not necessary to having a sufficient understanding of what we are doing in marriage and love and relationships. Great tools, wonderful But if all I know is Christ crucified, it's enough. It's more than sufficient. And that's where we're landing tonight. So look at verse 5 there. He said, I come to you, and and I've decided not not to scheme, not to put a plan together, not to figure out how you think and then manipulate your thinking by playing a mind game with you, but I'm just going to come to you, and I'm going to tell you about Christ crucified, and he's going to talk about all these things. Why? Verse 5. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5 that you might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Wisdom of men. But why is this valuable wisdom? Because it comes from the power of God. If this was just secular Joe Blow, this is what I think about parenting, this is what I think about marriage, you can read it in any magazine. There's a bajillion books that have nothing to do with Jesus. That's not real wisdom. That's not birthed from the power of God. So these are valuable because they come from the power of God. But what this is saying is, I want to know Christ crucified among you only so that you might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's a resting, but it's not a resting in the wisdom of men or how much we know or how much we think we can spin or how we can manipulate a word, but it is a rest in the power of God. This must be our aim. This is what I want us to land on tonight. This is how I want us to end Genesis 24. It must be our aim. It must be our hope. It must be the source of our resolve. That what we know of marriage and parenting and family and love would not be from man's wisdom, but from God's power. And if indeed it's God's power, it will be Christ crucified in what we're speaking of. Why? Because man's wisdom is vanity. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those who stay awake all night long, watching intently, do so in vain. We don't want to build our homes and our relationships and our loves and our marriages in a vain way. But if we do it in a godless way, it's in a vain way. But if we submit to God, we're submitting to his power, and there's power there, and it's faithful, and it's good, and it's rightly representing what he wants it to represent. There's much to say and hear about man's wisdom, but what it produces is empty, hollow, and immensely lacking. The wisdom shared by Mike and Linda Cardwell last week in their testimony was powerful. You know why? Because it wasn't just what they wanted to say about marriage and and parenting and time. It's what they drew from God, from His Word. They said, you know, this is what we learned here, and then they would quote Scripture. They say, and then we learned this here, and then they would quote Scripture. That's why it wasn't in vain that we listened to them, but we were hearing what the power of God will actually do in a significant way in a marriage. And look at verse 7. Verse 7 here freaks me out. It's crazy what is said in verse 7. So let's read verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God decreed before the ages for our glory. What do we impart? And what kind? Secret and hidden. I love spy movies. I love like, um, I really like National Treasure because it's... It's Disney, but it's not ridiculously boring and horrible. And uh, like I like the the, the National Treasure movie because it's all this. There's these hidden truths and these hidden secret things. And the more you dig, the more you find. And then you find something else. And it's like, oh well, this is just a small part to this bigger picture and all this. But what I'm seeing here is, yeah, that's cool. And those are cool storylines. All the all the movies where there's you know there's someone's trying to find out what happened in the past, like Born Identity and things like that. That's great and it's intriguing. But here, what are we talking about? The secret, hidden wisdom of God. That's what we're... I'm coming to you knowing Christ crucified because I don't want you to lean on man's wisdom, but I want you to lean on the power of God and what, in fact, I'm communicating and I'm imparting to you is a secret and hidden wisdom of God decreed before the ages for our glory. That's really significant. My glory is diminished. The only glory that I have is the glory of God. And in fact, if it's anything else, it's nothing. So do we think like this? Do we think like this? Do we consider that in our marriages, in our relationships, the way you love and parent, the way you exist in community is designed to impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God that informs a lost world of eternal truth? That's what's being said here. It's crazy. I want to know nothing but Christ crucified, and that informs me perfectly. Books about it? Great. But we don't need that to have a sufficient understanding of these things. And in fact, if you believe what this says and you're leaning on the power of God, what you're going to impart to people through your marriage is hidden, secret, eternal truths. we are a lost world. They're watching, and they need to hear it. And we need to impart it. And we will only do so by leaning on the power of God. The way you love, the way you parent is designed to impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God that informs a lost world of eternal truth. It's so huge. And so what I'm trying to say here is that, get this, this is a big point for tonight. If you were taking notes, this is what you would write down. Marriage is a worldly shadow that is designed to represent a heavenly reality. Marriage is a worldly shadow that will not exist forever, that is designed to represent a heavenly eternal reality. In your marriage, you can live in such a way, you're designed to live in such a way that you're imparting a secret and hidden truth that's eternally true in this little thing called marriage and your spark and shadow of a life. It's a big deal. Marriage is a worldly shadow that is designed to rightly represent a heavenly reality. Marriage is not an end in itself. Don't just aim to get married, stay married, and die. That's an anomaly in our culture. Get married, stay married, die. That's like, whoa, man, they got married, stayed married, and died. Wow. What your design is, is to get married, stay married, rightly represent the heavenly reality that your marriage represents, and then die. So that you can enjoy the heavenly reality that your marriage was representing while you were here for that short breath of a moment compared to eternity. So don't just aim to get married, stay married, and die even though that's a neat thing in our culture. There's more to it. See, as Paul speaks these words in Corinthians about heavenly realities and divine wisdom, I want to consider what he's about to approach. And now, I said there was some junk. Now we're going to look at the specifics of the junk so that it can inform us. What I'm about to share with you is a list of things as you just go through 1 Corinthians and look at the stuff he's going to talk about. And he's saying, all I know among you is Christ crucified, and it's sufficient to inform every single one of these things. It's a list of things that the church is not rightly representing. Remember, we talked about what happens when something is misrepresented. The truth is missed, whatever it is. Here, he has a whole you know, long letter of things that are not being rightly represented in the church. There's divisions in the church. There's improper treatment and judgment of apostles in the church. There's sexual immorality in church the church. There's lawsuits against believers in the church. There's misrepresentations about marriage. There's misrepresentations and misgivings about calling. There's misrepresentations of the unmarried, the widows, food offered to idols, idolatry, head coverings, gifts, love, prophecy, tongues, orderly worship, the resurrection, and the collection for the saints. He's saying, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to know Christ crucified. And every single one of these misrepresentations, that should not be a part of the church, I'm going to rightly speak to as I speak to you about Christ crucified. You know more than you think if you know Christ crucified. There's a link here to Romans 1, and I don't want you to turn there, but I want you to hear that in Romans 1, verse 18, it talks about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is not something that, uh, that is very popular to talk about. But in Romans 1, 18, it says that the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. So unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Paul's saying, I'm coming to you because there's misrepresentations in the truth. All these things, the way you're dealing with marriage, the way you're dealing with widows, the way you're uh, messing with the apostles, all the sexual immorality, the lawsuits, these are misrepresentations. And if you link that to Romans 1, what he's saying is, in telling you about Christ crucified, I am warning you of the wrath to come. God's wrath is towards unrighteousness. It's in unrighteous living that you misrepresent truth. And so God's wrath is towards unrighteousness because that unrighteousness suppresses the truth. What he is saying is that I'm telling you about Jesus Christ crucified because God desperately does not want the truth suppressed. He wants his truths to be rightly represented, and that's why the church exists. And that's why your marriage exists. We talked about parenting and love and community, all these things that go with marriage. Your marriage exists to communicate truth. Every one of these things that I mentioned in this laundry list is an opportunity to either lean on man's wisdom or God's power, to say it another way. Like, you can either lean on man's wisdom in your approach to food sacrifice to idols, or you can see what God has to say and lean on his power. Or about widows, or about the unmarried, or about marriage, or sexual immorality, or lawsuits against believers. Every single one of those, the way that you respond to any one of those things, you will either misrepresent it by leaning on man's wisdom, or you'll either rightly represent it by leaning on God's power. And our only hope of leaning on and rightly representing God's power is if we know Jesus Christ crucified. If we know Jesus Christ crucified, we will rightly represent the truth by leaning on God's power and not thinking that we can figure it out on our own. So when I said a minute ago that marriage is a worldly shadow that's designed to rightly represent a heavenly reality... What I mean is that in our marriages, we're designed by God to live within an order and a structure that represents a new covenant. Big deal. New covenant, big deal. Why is the new covenant a big deal? Because the old covenant didn't work. It didn't work. The Old Covenant the, the old covenant in the Old Testament is this thing that is a 1,500-year sacrificial system, a tutor that shows us how depraved and wicked we are and how unable we are, no matter what standard is set, to do what is needed to earn our way to God. We can't do it. You've got a list of ceremonial washings and ritual cleansings and going here and doing this and doing that and making sure that you don't break this bone and making sure you could you know, all, There's all these things. And all it does is show that we are a depraved people who cannot earn our way to the Lord. And in fact, in Jeremiah, he says, there will be a new covenant. Learn what's going on here. You guys stink. You can't earn your way into the presence of the Lord by your own doing. There's going to be a new covenant, and there's going to be a Savior that you need that will intercede for you and be a mediator for you because you need that. So, when I said marriage is a worldly shadow that's designed to rightly represent the heavenly, heavenly reality, I'm saying that the heavenly reality it represents is a new covenant that exists eternally. Now, <clears throat> the way we love and react and deal with conflict is also supposed to rightly represent this new covenant. And just to spend another moment on covenant, turn to Hebrews 8 briefly, a little bit to the right from 1 Corinthians. And I just want to read this so that y'all can get into this covenant way of thinking. Covenant is something that we could springboard to and spend a year on. And we could spend a year on old covenant, and then we could spend a year on new covenant. We could spend a year on Jesus and the fulfillment of the covenant and what it means to abolish but not completely do away with but still fulfill the old covenant. I mean, there's so much covenant that it's overwhelming. But what your marriage represents is a new covenant. And so we got to get at least a glimpse here in Hebrews. So in Hebrews 8, it says, Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. They're talking about Jesus. One who's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up. Not man. He's showing the difference between a new covenant and the old covenant. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law and the old covenant. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Let them inform what is true and eternal, not be an end in themselves. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for a second covenant, the new covenant. For he finds fault with them when he says, and this is what I quoted from Jeremiah earlier, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This was hundreds of years before Jesus. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. That's a big difference. That's a very personal relationship with a very real God who would put his law and his words on your heart and on your mind. That's very, very intimate. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's what covenant is. God's saying, I'm entering into a covenant on my terms. I'm doing everything that's necessary so that you can be in my presence. I will be your God. You will be my people. The covenant we have with God does not, we don't get a say. We don't get to say, what about uh, Tuesdays? Can I take Tuesday off from the covenant? No, we don't have a say in it. God lines out what the covenant is and what the standard is and what's required. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other and another and his neighbor and each other his, and each one his brothers saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me. Why shall they know him? Because he put his law on their minds and their hearts. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And then if you turn over to chapter 9, the next page, verse 11, listen to these few verses. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For those who are fallen and in need of a Savior, eternal redemption is a big deal. If you engage someone in the community who has no clue about who Jesus is, that means they have no clue about eternal redemption. They have no clue about a new covenant that exists in Christ, and they need to know that. And in the way you live, you can represent that. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance." Eternal inheritance, eternal redemption, exists only in a new covenant. So is the new covenant a big deal? You're dang right it is. The new covenant's a huge deal. I encourage you, if you want to know more about covenant, go online. Listen, we got all the sermons online, and Ben has a, 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 the whole thing on covenant, and he's got a deal. Covenant is thicker than blood. It informs covenant clearly. We don't have time to look at it tonight. But you've got to know at least this much so that you can know that your marriage represents a new covenant. So, marriage is a worldly shadow that's designed to rightly represent a heavenly reality, and the heavenly reality is the new covenant. It's an eternal reality, eternal redemption, eternal inheritance exists in this new covenant in Christ. So, let us consider (laughs) this transitional. If I know Christ crucified only, how does that inform my marriage? I want to look at some specifics. The specifics are amazing, they're really specific. And so I want to look at some of these specifics, because they're so specific, and it's so informing for us. Jesus, Christ crucified, let us consider leaving and cleaving. Have you ever considered why we do that? Why do we leave and cleave? Leave the old, cleave to the new. What does it mean to cleave? What's another way to say that? Cling to, to hold fast. Okay. Okay. Turn to Ephesians 5. We've been in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is where husbands get that smack in the face with reality that you're supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church, and it turns out that's not so easy. No matter how great your wife is, Christ died for the church. It's Not so easy. It's not popular to say, but loving your wife as Christ loved the church is hard. But in Ephesians 5, 31-32, it says this, God has already said, It's my design to you men that you would love your wives as Christ loved the church. And it's my design to you women that you would submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And there's a design there. And in your marriage, you're supposed to represent what I want you to represent. And then in 31, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery is profound. A mystery, like, kind of like a hidden wisdom, a secret eternal wisdom. It's profound, and it doesn't just jump out at you. But what he's saying here is that you leave and you cleave. And when I tell you to leave and cleave, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So you leave and cleave because Christ did. That's the point. How did Christ leave and cleave? Did he leave anyone? Philippians? Yeah. What right hand was he seated at in the heavenly places? The Father. We leave and cleave because Jesus left and cleaved, left and cleft, whatever. That's why we do it. It's not just something that, well, it works better from a cultural, sociological standpoint if you're not so close to your mom and dad when you're trying to be a husband and wife. It's way bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. To leave and cleave is to follow the example of Christ. Christ modeled this for us. If all we know is Christ crucified, what we know is that in doing the will of the Father, He left the Father and He cleaved to the church, His bride. He came down from heaven, He made Himself a servant. The one who hung the stars, he made himself a servant, and he cleaved, he clings to, he holds fast to the church. So when you're called to leave and cleave, you're following the example of Christ. And the cleaving is not temporal. The cleaving is not temporal. As you sit with your spouse right now, if you have a spouse in the room, and you're sitting with that spouse, and you are cleaving... The only right that you would ever have to leave is if Christ abandons the church. If Christ abandons his bride, then you have all the right you want to abandon yours. say it another way, as long as Christ cleaves to his bride, you cleave to yours. Leaving and cleaving. If I know Christ crucified, I know all I need to know about leaving and cleaving. That's one of the most complicated things in the world. There's more people who go to counseling because of the leaving and cleaving. That's the first step. Leave. I don't want to leave. I like mom's cooking. Cleave. I don't know how to cleave. I like mom's cooking. Like It's a complicated thing, but here it's saying leave and cleave, and you're following the example of Christ, and you cleave to your bride as long as Christ cleaves to his bride. Why? Because if you don't you're misrepresenting the unbreakable covenant-keeping love that Christ has for His bride. You hear that? Your marriage is designed to represent the new covenant. And in the new covenant, there's a covenant love that's unbreakable. It's forever. And if, if you leave your bride, what you're saying is to the world who's watching is, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's important, but not. Um, Christ leaves; he doesn't leave his bride. It, it gets confused, and there's a misrepresentation there because you're supposed to be rightly representing cleaving, because Jesus did. So if you don't, you're misrepresenting the unbreakable covenant-keeping love that Christ has for his bride. And just on a side note, I know there's a lot of people who have divorced and remarried, and the urging here is, cling to your spouse, cleave. You made the mistake once, don't make it again. Take seriously this covenant that you're in in a way that you never even thought of maybe before. It doesn't mean you're damaged goods and it's already a mess and you can't fix it. If if you're remarried, cleave. Do what this says. Take that covenant seriously and rightly represent the love that Christ has for the church that's unbreakable and eternal. So let us consider the way we're called to love. We've seen leaving and cleaving. If we know Christ crucified, we know all we need to know about leaving and cleaving because Christ set the example in leaving his father, taking on the form of a servant, sacrificing his will even, which we're going to look at, and loving wholeheartedly with, and, and not quitting. So let us consider the way we're called to love if we know only Christ crucified. Ravi Zacharias has a, a quote in his book, I, Isaac, take the Rebecca's one in that stack. And we've shared it before, but he says the will is that faculty which can only be tested when pain is as much a part of its choice as pleasure is. So we're called to love. We're called to love like Christ. And so he says, as he's looking at this love of Christ, and he's looking at Christ crucified, and he's drawing a conclusion from that, one of the conclusions he draws from knowing only Christ crucified is that the will is that faculty that can only be tested when pain is as much a part of its choice as pleasure is. So your will's not being tested when everything's easy and great and simple and happy-go-lucky and the stars are shining bright and the flowers are sweet-smelling and there's no problems and there's no conflict. That's not when your will's being tested. Your will's being tested in the other times. And he's saying that the will is that faculty which can only be tested when pain is as much a part of its choice as pleasure is. Why does he say choice? Well, Because when pain comes in, you have the choice to say no and run away. You have the choice to say, "Uh -uh, I ain't doing that. That's why a lot of our modern-day dating is, has been called divorce practice. Because it's great, everything's fun, we love each other, it's fun, we're doing things we shouldn't be doing, but it's fun, and it's great. And the conflict comes in and says, I'm not going to let pain be a part of this choice later. So the will is tested. Was there a will for them to stay together? No. When it was tested, it showed what it was. How can our will to love be tested in any relationship? Just from y'all's perspective, how can our will to love be tested And just because you're sharing doesn't mean that your will to love was tested because we well, are sitting by. Things get tough. Yes. When Mike and Linda Cardwell shared their testimony last week, did you hear after 39 years and 10 months, things are just so simple now. We so got this. No. It's not this is what I've learned. It's, this is what I'm learning after almost 40 years. How can our will be tested, our will to love be tested? When the other person's not easy to love. I know that's never happened in this room, but, uh, but yeah, that happens a lot. In fact, my wife and I had an argument this week. And uh, we went to a marriage conference a couple weeks ago. And I'm leading words about a marriage conference this week. It's like this swirling thing that's surrounding us, keeping us in Genesis 24. And, uh, and one of the things they said is, You're your biggest problem in marriage. You are your biggest problem in marriage. And so we got in an argument, and I said, I am my biggest problem in marriage, but today you are a close second. <laughs> and, and I meant it from the bottom of my heart. But we had a date night last night, so everything's fine. You know. We went to Starbucks and talked about it. <clears throat> but uh, but the, the will to love is tested when things are wrong. How can a will be tested anytime if you're running a race and your will is tested? I've got a will to finish. But if you don't finish, it turns out that you didn't have the will to finish. There's a lot of people who said, I have the will to live, and they'll overcome these circumstances that point to their demise, and somehow they'll come out on the other side, and all of a sudden you're talking to them, and you're like, I can't believe you're breathing, and you saw a will to live that overcame what the circumstances were. Our will to love will be tested, and your will to love will be tested in every relationship. Why? Because you you live in a world of sinners. When you come to, like, people have a misconception when you come to church and there's problems, it's like... (laughs) What's the problem there? Why are there problems there? There's not supposed to be problems. The absence of conflict is not what we're aiming for as a community of faith. That's stupid. That's not even realistic. The absence of conflict. We're sinners. That's like going to the hospital and saying, what are all those sick people doing in there? We are a bunch of sinners here at the church, and there's conflict. But the way we resolve the conflict and work through it and show love in a community either will rightly represent the new covenant that exists in Christ or will misrepresent it. And do the very thing that God said, that's what my wrath is against. Don't suppress the truth. So, well, our love will be tested in any relationship. So we got asked, if we only know Christ crucified, was Christ's willed love tested? And if so, is there an example set for us that we can follow? Or to say it a better way, is there a design in place that we can submit to that we might rightly represent the unbreakable love of a new covenant? And you don't have to turn there, but in John six thirty eight, it says, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven leaving, that was the leaving part, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So if husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church in Ephesians 5, as we're called to it, they must die to themselves, die to their own will, and submit, like Christ, to the will of the Father. If you want to know, how do I get rid of the things that I want and do what God wants, how do I do No Christ crucified. Because Christ said, I did not come here to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And so that's how he's going to love the church. And so if you're going to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you're going to die to your own will. That's going to be big some days, and it's going to be small some days. Some days it's going to hurt, and you're going to be saying, I don't know how to die to this will, because it's really strong. I don't know how to die to it. and I really want my way here. There's other days it's like, okay, well, we'll go to Wendy's instead of Taco Bueno. I'll die to my will. Big deal. It's different depending on the day, depending on the circumstance, depending on the way that your will is being tested. But if husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, they die to themselves, die to their will, and submit like Christ to the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that you sacrifice your selfishness for the well-being of your bride. Not because she's earned it. The bride has not earned it. The church has not merited the love of Christ. So if we're going to love like Christ... We're going to love in times when your loved one may be unlovable. A pain in the neck, hard to deal with, difficult, rude, angry for no good reason, moody, whatever. It's not easy. And so here, we see if we're going to love that way, we, we, we die to our selfishness and we sacrifice that for the well-being of the bride, not because she earned it, not because she deserves it, but because God tells you to. That's a really big deal. Why did he tell you to? Why did God say, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church? He wasn't just trying to set a high standard that we would all fail. He was setting a standard that would represent the new covenant. He's saying, love my wife as Christ loved the church because my design is that you're married to show the love of Christ. Husband, So when when things are hard between you and your wife, don't just be a sissy and submit to what she wants, but submit to the will of the Father and do what's best. Don't just be a pushover who's like, I'm love like Christ. Christ was no pushover. He knew the will of the Father, and he would do anything. He would go to death to do the will of the Father. And so you submit to the will of the Father if indeed you're going to represent the love of Christ in your marriage. He tells you to because you're representing his new covenant love. That's the groom part. The covenant love that you're representing is the groom part, the Jesus part. That's what you're called to represent, not the bride part, the groom part. There's a difference between the two, and we've got to see the difference. Turn to Luke 22. As we're talking about this, knowing Christ crucified, how does it inform love? In Luke 22, Verse 42, we ask the question, did Jesus ever have to sacrifice his will for the good of the church? In reference to the church, how was his will to love tested? We've talked about this before, and I want us to see it, but I want us to see it in the light of representing a new covenant. Luke 22, verse 42. We'll start in verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. This is that moment in the garden, moments before he's taken to the cross. And this is what he says. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What he's saying there is, Father, I feel the weight of the sin of the world in a way right now that I have never felt before. Father, the burden on my shoulders is greater than, than I have ever experienced. And so, Father, I'm communicating to you right now, my will is that the cup that you're asking me to drink would pass from my mouth. That's how serious Jesus is saying this to the Father. Father, if it's your will, please don't let this happen. This was a serious moment in the history of the world. When Jesus is taking on the sins of the world and feeling the reality of that in a way that we can never express with our inadequate words. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. And look what he says. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I don't desire this. I'm feeling this in a way that I haven't ever felt, but your will be done. He submits to the will of the Father. He sets an example for us in love here. Consider, if I was to ask you why you love your wife, would you have anything more to say than, well, she does this, and she says this, and she acts like this, and she's pretty? Would any part of your answer be that God tells you to? Because that's a really good answer. That's a really robust answer. To most people who are without the Spirit and don't know much about Jesus, if they say, why do you love your wife? And you say, because God tells me to, they're going to be like, you don't love her. That's a lame answer. Would you say that it's the will of the Father for me to love her and I embrace that will? If not, I would submit that you're not loving your wife in the robust manner by which you were designed because that's an important deal that you love because God tells you to. A robust love represents the new covenant and the world is watching. The world's watching. The reason that you are in a marriage, the reason that you are designed to love as Christ loved the church and submit as the church submits to Christ is because the world's watching and there's a message to be proclaimed and it's called the gospel. And it's the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. It's a big deal, a real big deal. And you're called to put that on display. The world's watching. So if someone asks me, why do you love your wife? A good answer would be because God tells me to. God modeled this love in the new covenant that exists in Christ. So just like Christ loved the church by the will of the father, I love my wife by the will of the father. That's a good answer. But it's not on the tip of my tongue. I don't know if it's on the tip of your tongue, but that's a good answer. Christ loved the church by the will of the Father. I love my wife by the will of the Father. I'll never walk away from her. I'll love her through the hard times, even when she doesn't deserve it. Look what's represented there. It's a big deal. Wives. Picked on the husbands enough. Wives. How is your love informed if all you know is Christ crucified? Remember in Titus 2, in the community of faith, you were. God's design is that You are supposed to be taught by older women to love your husband and children. Taught to love. You're taught. You're being trained to love your husband and children. You're being pushed beyond your natural limit so that you might learn to love your husband and children. We've talked about this. You're being taught how to do it. This goes far beyond doing it because your husband stirred your emotions, said something sweet, brought you roses. Your love should go beyond that. It goes beyond your because your child said something sweet and smiled at you. I love you so much. Then when they're screaming, you're like, shut your mouth. Why? Because you're representing the new covenant, wives. Wives, in that you're representing the new covenant. What role? You're representing the role of the church in the new covenant. The new covenant whereby if people don't know about the new covenant, there is no eternal redemption, there is no eternal inheritance. So, wives, it's a big deal that you submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ because what you're representing is the truth about a new covenant love that will never break. My wife and I were discussing how easy it is to be in love on your honeymoon where there's no distractions or responsibilities. We went to an all-inclusive resort. I'll probably never go to another one my whole life. I don't know, maybe like a 10 or 20-year anniversary. I don't know. But we went to this all-inclusive resort, and it's like, you don't pay for anything. You don't have to worry about money for, like, the whole week. You just ask for things, and they give it to you. It's awesome. Oh, and, And the only big decisions you have to make is, do we want to go to the Japanese steakhouse or the seafood place tonight for dinner or the other 15 options? Do we want to go lay by the pool or do we want to lay on the beach? I don't know. That's a really hard decision. Let's do both. Let's lay by the pool for a while, then we'll go to the beach. Your will to love is not being tested on your honeymoon. It's, it's like stress-free, no testing of the will zone. So easy to be in love on your honeymoon. But when you get back to the real world, with family, I know none of y'all have problems with family, like, like in-laws. No. Friends. Like you have your set of friends, and now she has her set of friends, and it's like, we can't all hang out together. It's never going to work. Bills. Jobs. Schedules, and you realize there must be a will to love. And in, in willing to love, you're representing the new covenant. You're representing the place where eternal redemption and eternal inheritance exists. We're talking, Lindsay and I were talking about how easy it is to love your little bundle of joy who can't talk yet, so they just smile at you when you walk in the room. And then they turn two or three, and they have an opinion about everything, and it's usually totally different from your opinion. They have an opinion about where to sit. You need to sit down right there. Oh, there better be a will to love there, or else you just become impatient and want to yell at them and tell them, you know, you're crazy, and why don't you grow up, even though you're three, yeah. So that quote, the will is that faculty which can only be tested when pain is as much a part of its choice as pleasure is. So what I'm telling you is choose pain. How's that? How's that for an uplifting Bible study? Choose pain, because in doing so, you represent the new covenant. There's times where you're going to have to choose pain, because if you're not willing to choose pain, you're going to bolt, and you're going to misrepresent the truth about the new covenant. So there's times you're going to have to choose pain. You're going to have to choose to say, this stinks, and this season is hard. I don't even know how to put to words how confused and angry I am. In fact, I'm angry, and I don't even know why. I've yet to trace back to the source of my anger. I just want to yell. And that same argument or conversation that I had with Lindsay the other night, she goes, are you mad at me? I said, No! Nah! It's a mess. But if there's a will to love, you will choose pain. Or you will bolt. You will leave. And in doing so, you represent the new covenant. It's sweet on the other side of it. The rest of that quote that I shared says, nothing brings harmony more than embracing the will of God. You're dang right. Because embracing the will of God, you die to your own will. And your spouse does too. Nothing brings fragmentation more than turning away from the will of God. Marriage is the harmony of God synchronizing two wills with the will of the Father. So what marriage is, is God saying, come here man, you're going to die to your will and you're going to live according to mine. And marriage is saying, come here woman, you're going to die to your will and you're going to live according to mine. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you all together in a one flesh union that is representative of the union between Christ and the church and you're going to represent my new covenant. But you're going to have to die to your own wills. You're going to have to submit to my will. And there's nothing that brings more beautiful harmony than that. As Christ embraced the will of the Father, he ushered in a new covenant. Y'all see that? Like when when they had the cup, he said, take this cup, drink of it. It's representative of the new covenant. When Christ died, he submitted to the will of the Father and he ushered in a new covenant. And when you submit to the will of the Father, you are representing that new covenant. It's a big, important deal. When Christ embraced the will of the Father, he ushered in a new covenant, and as you embrace the will of the Father, you will represent that new covenant that Christ ushered in. That's where we can say that marriage is more about more than staying in love. It's about keeping covenant. That's such an uncultural statement. Marriage is about far more than staying in love. It's about keeping covenant. Now, do I hope we stay in love? Absolutely. But your will to love and your keeping of the covenant and your understanding that you will rightly represent the new covenant that exists in Christ will fuel a love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was this guy who, uh, he was martyred, um, and when he was in prison, he was actually engaged to be married. This was the mid-1900s, and he was engaged to be married, and he has these things that he wrote, and they're letters from prison, and he wrote a lot about marriage, and I'm sure he did that because marriage was on his mind because if he was to get out of prison, he would get married to his honey. But he did not. He was killed. Brutally. Brutally killed. But he wrote a lot about marriage, and one of the things that he wrote, he said, it is no longer love that sustains marriage, but it is marriage that sustains love. It is no longer love that sustains marriage, but it is marriage that sustains love. John Piper actually gave an example in this book, The Momentary Marriage. He said, he said if one spouse says, I fall in love with someone else, He said one profoundly wonderful answer is, so what? That's not decisive. Keeping covenant is decisive. And he goes on to say, it's not about staying in love. It's about keeping covenant. And there's more love there than you will ever know. In Matthew 22, God reminds us that marriage on earth is temporal. There's some guys who come to to Jesus and they say, Okay, Jesus, the law is that if, if a man dies and leaves his wife behind, that the wife is supposed to marry the brother, right? Well, Jesus, there's this woman, and she, her husband died, and she married the brother, but he had seven other brothers, and they've all she's outlived all of them. She's been married seven times, all the brothers. What happens to her in heaven? And Jesus gives them a stark reminder, and he says, guys, there's no marriage in heaven. You'll be as the angels. That's why scripturally, if a spouse dies, the other one is free to remarry. It's okay. There should be a clear conscience there. Because you don't get to heaven and see both of them and be like, oh, this is uncomfortable. (laughs) You get there and you say, hi, holy, holy, holy. And you worship God wholeheartedly. Glad you're here. Holy, holy, holy. It's not, that's not a big deal. So as that woman engaged her seven husbands, who were all brothers, and that would have made it even more awkward, right? Because they fight. Jesus says, look, in marriage, there's, in death, there's no marriage. In, in heaven, you're not still married. Because marriage is an earthly thing. An earthly thing that my father designed so that you would represent the new covenant. That's a big deal. He reminds them that there's no marriage in heaven. So what we could say is that death separates you from the love of your spouse. Did y'all hear that? Did y'all hear that? Death separates you from the love of your spouse. That's like the most unpoetic thing I could have ever said. Because the poems and the love songs, I will love you forever. There's a group, Death Cab for Cutie, and they say, I'll follow you into the dark. After death, I'll follow you into love and we'll love each other for all of dark eternity. No, you won't, because when you die, you're separated from the love of your spouse. Sorry, not poetic. I probably won't write a poem about that. Death separates you from the love of your spouse. But it's interesting. Contrast that. In Romans 8, we're reminded. We are reminded. We, the bride of Christ, the church, are reminded. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or danger or famine or nakedness or the sword? The sword, death. You don't wound someone with a sword. You kill someone with a sword. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Hear that. In death, you're separated from the love of your spouse. In death, for the believer in the new covenant, you're more than a conqueror. You don't just die, but you die in a beautiful way. You die in a way that brings glory to the Father, and you come into a perfect union with Christ where there's no sin. You get to stand before the Father because of the Son and worship him. So love between a husband and a wife is separated by death, but not even death can separate us, the bride of Christ, from the love of Christ. So what's our aim? How does knowing Christ crucified inform marriage and love and community and all these things we've been talking about for eight weeks? Please hear this. Our aim is to love in such a way that we're able to communicate that hidden and secret truth from God, that hidden and secret wisdom of God. Our aim is to rightly represent in our little spark and our little shadow, our little twinkling of an eye life, that in that time, we would rightly represent the eternal, beautiful, rich truth that the love of Christ is forever. That's a big deal. The love of Christ is not temporary. It is not fleeting. It is not wishy-washy. It is firm. It is solid, and it is forever. So if we know Christ crucified and all these things we've been talking about, these relationships, the way that we'll deal with conflict resolution, the way that we love through hard times, in the peaks, in the valleys, we will communicate the truth that the love of Christ is forever. For a fallen people who need redemption, that should be beautiful. The love of Christ is forever. From our marriages, from our community of faith, from our churches, in the midst of our conflicts, on the mountaintops, in the deep valleys, in the storms, in the wonderful days, in the easy times, in the hard times, We want to cry out to the lost and dying world that's watching and boldly proclaim the love of Christ is forever. He will never forsake you. Run to him. He will never forsake you. If you have any hope of being in the presence of God eternally and having any eternal redemption, any eternal inheritance, run to Jesus I believe it so much, I'm going to do everything in my marriage, everything in my relationships, in the community of faith, everything in my friendships, everything in my parenting. I'm going to do everything I can to communicate to the lost world. Jesus' love is forever. Nothing can separate you from it. It's not double dutch where you're in and you're out and you're in and you're out. That's not what it is. Nothing separates you from the love of Christ. Your marriage is designed to represent the new covenant. It's a big deal. We're ending Genesis 24. That's it. It's over. It's over. Genesis 24 is done. But as we go to Genesis 25 and 26, we're going to see Isaac and Rebecca. We're going to see their marriage. We're going to see families. We're going to see weird scenarios. We're going to see uncomfortable moments. And we're going to learn through that. But we're going to learn in the context of Genesis. So next week, we'll be going to Genesis 25. But here tonight, hear it. Your marriages exist to represent the new covenant. It is not an, an end in itself. It's not a means to an end. It's designed to show the love of Christ in the new covenant the unbreakable covenant-keeping love. Let's pray. God, I so pray that you're glorified tonight. In a last-minute effort to sum up eight weeks of this picture, I so hope you're glorified. God, the things we've talked about tonight are so great. They're so beyond anything this world has to offer according to its wisdom. They're so beyond anything that we could conjure up if we reach down deep inside of ourselves. They're so beyond that. And I'm so aware of how our most articulate, passionately spoken words cannot even begin to to explain the love of Christ. But I pray that we would take seriously the call the call that in our relationships and the way we love and the way we deal with conflict and the way we show patience and the way we die to our own will and submit to the will of the Father, I pray that every moment of every day we're doing everything we can to put your glory on display because that's the very reason you created us. I pray that a lost world would see that and run to Jesus. I pray that in the way that I deal with my child who may be acting up in Walmart, that it would stir in someone else saying, I want to run to Jesus like that that can actually happen, blows my mind. God, I love you so much. I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that his love is never-ending. I thank you that the marriage that we have as the church to the groom, Christ, is eternal. And that nothing can separate us from it. We revel in that. We praise you. We eagerly anticipate the return of Christ. And as we do so, I pray that we would rightly represent the new covenant.